Hello and welcome to the Friday edition of Scottish Independence Podcasts. I'm Fiona McGregor and my co-host is Marlene Halliday. This week we have another episode of our Indie Jigsaw show, continuing the discussion about a constitution for Scotland with guests Jenny Eels and Dr Elliot Bulmer. So before we get on to the historical constitution and the future constitution, we were involved in a little bit of present day constitutional drama when we both went through to Edinburgh to take part in the now Scotland demo outside of colonial headquarters. I think its proper name is Queen Elizabeth House. On the front of it says UK government. So it's a huge building. It's a whole block. I think having the big Union Jack right up one side and calling it Queen Elizabeth House I mean, it is offensive. You wonder how much it's designed to be inflammatory. Just to be fair, there is one corner that's got a salt tyre on it. Then you go down to the other corner and it's got a big Union Jack on it. I'm sure there's people of both constitutional viewpoints work in there. But the symbolism and the branding, colonial overlordship inherent in that design is just quite depressing. But it is handy for the station. If anybody fancies popping through for a spot of flag waving. When we did the show last month, we were looking at the work that Mike Russell's doing to create an interim constitution for Scotland, and we'll put the link to that show in the notes of this podcast. We had a lot of interest in that show, and we got quite a few comments from people saying, well, what about the claim of right? Can we not use that? Is that not our constitution? Well, we thought that was a good question, so we decided to do some research. Well, I say we, Marlene, did the research. And here's what we found. I'm of a generation that was not taught anything about Scottish history at school. I know the phrase claim of right. Apart from that, I knew almost nothing else. Marlene has helpfully put together a series of slides. Now, obviously, we can't show you those on the podcast, but if you want to have a look at them, they are in our Indie Live Extra YouTube channel. Going back to 1320, the Declaration of Arbroath, kind of context for that. There's um, There'd been the Scottish Wars of Independence. That, of course, was where William Wallace was fighting. 1314, we had Battle of Bannockburn. 1320, we get this document, perhaps drafted um, in Dalkeith or, or one of the uh, abbeys near Dalkeith. It was written by the monks up in Arbroath, and it was Abbot Bernard, but also Robert the Bruce and uh, the nobles of Scotland. Our most tireless prince, king and lord, the Lord Robert, to him we are bound both by his right and by his merits that our freedom may still be maintained, and by him, come what may, we mean to stand. Yet, if he should give up what he has begun, we should exert ourselves at once to drive him out as our enemy and as a subverter of his own right and ours, and make some other man who was well able to defend us as our king." I mean, that's amazing. 1320. And I mean, Robert was one of the signatories to that. So he knew <laughs> he, knew what, he, he knew what he was signing up for. No, no question of that. So okay. we get to 1689. And, and I think this is where the phrase Scottish claim of right first appears. So the background to this one is that James Seventh, who was also James II of, um, of England, he'd upped and run from England over to France. So the English Parliament said, OK, he's abdicated, the throne's empty, 
and they offered the throne to William and Mary. Mary had a bit of a claim. They offered it to William and Mary as joint um, monarchs. The Scots couldn't do that because technically, you know, he hadn't actually abdicated. He hadn't scarpered from Scotland. Um, so they got together and he was declared unfit to rule. And then they offered the throne to William and Mary, of course. The, the argument was, well, he has fled to France. He had promoted the Catholic faith to the detriment of the Protestant religion of Scotland. And he had appointed judges and other officers without consulting the Scottish Parliament. So basically, he'd acted unlawfully under the laws of Scotland. So that's where it comes about. Therefore, the estates of the Kingdom of Scotland find and declare that King James VII, being a professed papist, did assume the regal power and acted as king without ever taking the oath required by law and hath, by the advice of evil and wicked counsellors, <laughs> invaded the fundamental constitution of the kingdom and altered it from a legal, limited monarchy to an arbitrary, despotic power, and hath exercised the same to the subversion of the Protestant religion and the violation of the laws and liberties of the kingdom, inverting all the ends of government, whereby he hath forfeited the right to the crown and the throne has become vacant. That's a fabulous description, isn't it? Just as you were reading that, and although we're talking about something from 1689, I'm thinking evil and wicked councillors invaded the fundamental constitution of the kingdom and altered it. That's Westminster. That's a description <laughs> of the current Tory party. Yes. And, and that bit about altered it from a legal, limited monarchy. Yes. What an interesting to, to in In arbitrary despotic power. I mean, that's the core yeah. of their argument. You've done this, mate. We're not having it. You're out. A legal limited monarchy yeah. against divine right of kings. They're yes. two completely different concepts. Yes. That is it's... fascinating. Then we get to 1989. There was a convention of interested parties in Scotland and they came up with another document. It was part of the process of setting up the devolved assembly. Their declaration, it was signed by Labour Party people, Lib Dems, civil organisations, you know, like churches, trade unions. SNP were involved in the initial discussions, but they dropped out when it became clear that the others didn't want to have any mention of independence. So it was a group called the Scottish Constitutional Convention who came up with the, with the actual statement. We gathered as the Scottish Constitutional Convention do hereby acknowledge the sovereign right of the Scottish people to determine the form of government best suited to their needs and do hereby declare and pledge that in all our actions and deliberations, their interests shall be paramount. We further declare and pledge that our actions and deliberations shall be directed to the following ends, to agree a scheme for an assembly or parliament for Scotland to mobilise Scottish opinion and ensure the approval of the Scottish people for that scheme and to assert the right of the Scottish people to secure implementation of that scheme. They use that phrase to echo what's there in the 1689 document. It's different language. They've modernised it. So now mm -hmm. we've got the sovereign right of the Scottish people to determine the form of government best suited to their needs. And that phrase, we hear that a lot currently in the, in the yeah. debate. But 
<laughs> compared to what's gone before and the king doesn't do what we want we're going to get rid of him <laughs> so maybe we could get people to agree that maybe we could have a little parliament suppose you have to put it in context it was the beginning of them getting their act together actually i guess so, they went as far as they thought they had yeah. support for and yeah. it's interesting even at this stage now to look how far beyond that we've gone the next time you get reference to the claim of right was a debate at Holyrood 2012 over 20 years from the 1989 one this time it's part of the process it's going to lead to setting up the 2014 independence referendum the debate was closed by by Mike Russell this time the motion that they put was that the parliament acknowledges the sovereign right of the Scottish people to determine the form of government best suited to their needs and declares and pledges that in all its actions and deliberations, their interests shall be paramount. We came a long way in 20 years, really, yeah. didn't we? There was one group of people in Holyrood at the time who voted against this motion. Would they have been of the Tory persuasion? I think they possibly were, yes. And that's interesting, isn't it? Because not everyone else support, who voted for it supports independence. Just reading that, again, it gives you a sense of how much has changed. Yeah. Because yeah. I don't think we would get that same response this time round. Well, we'll see what will happen. Uh, this is 2016, post-Brexit results. There was a claim of right uh, debate that this House has considered the claim of right for Scotland. It's post-Brexit. The claim of right is no longer only a historic document. It's now a fundamental principle which underlies the democracy and constitutional framework of Scotland. So that strikes me as quite an important shift. In 2014, Scotland was promised that the only way to remain in the EU was to vote to remain in the UK. In 2016, Scotland rejected Brexit. So from that follows, Scotland must retain the right to revisit our independent membership of the EU. Then last one, 2018, a claim of right debate actually in the Commons itself. The motion was that this House endorses the principles of the claim of right for Scotland, agreed by the Scottish Constitutional Convention in 1989 and by the Scottish Parliament in 2012, therefore acknowledges the sovereign right of the Scottish people to determine the form of government best suited to their needs. You'll notice that um, there's not many Tory mm. MPs there. There's a smattering of Labour people. This one was opened by Ian Blackford to reassert the right of the Scottish people to a system of government best suited to their needs. So you can see that phrase now is being repeated. What interested me was that this motion was passed unanimously, including the Tories, which I thought was interesting. It doesn't for a minute mean that the Scottish Tories are, are in favour of a second referendum, but it does surely show that they recognise that there's something about the claim of rights. However you might think you want to use it, actually, it's part and parcel of how we think about yeah, democracy and, and our constitutional framework. And this is Tommy Shepherd in Westminster closing that claim of right debate. Thank you, uh, Madam Deputy Speaker. I find it rather interesting that in the course of almost a three-hour debate, we've not heard anyone speak up against the notion of the claim of right. Uh, but I would caution colleagues against uh, being deluded by any faux agreement on this matter because I am confident there are many members of this chamber, not here tonight present, uh, who would find it uh, presumptuous, indeed, indeed uh, they would find it very presumptuous uh, that a group of citizens in one part of this island should assert the claim uh, to be able to control their own destiny. 
and they would do that because they regard this as a single nation. And they regard the people of Scotland, whilst important, as having no other rights than the people of the West Midlands or East Anglia. I'm pleased, I think, to recognise that most contributors to the debate tonight realise that the basis of our constitution is different than that. And in fact, we may have a single polity, but we have a multinational country which is based on serial acts of union that bring its component parts together. Because once we understand that, then the claim of right itself has to be the intellectual corollary of that position, because a union can only be maintained by consent. And if the people of Scotland do not therefore give their consent to maintaining it, it will naturally fall. Now, this idea of popular sovereignty of the people of Scotland is quite an old-fashioned one. In two years' time, we celebrate the 700th anniversary of the Declaration of our Arbroath. Yeah, yeah. And that is a document worth looking at. It was, in fact, a letter from the nobles of Scotland to the Pope at the time asking for him to intervene. And much of the language is archaic and much of it is reverential. But yet, in there is the grain of something that was never before expressed. It says clearly that if the King of Scotland does not represent the wishes of the people, then the people will find themselves a king who will. It is the first expression in modern times of the notion of popular sovereignty. Now that idea has ebbed and flowed over the seven centuries in between. 300 years ago, it inspired the dissenters who were resisting the fledgling union because they felt it was a matter of being sold out by the Scottish aristocracy. 200 years ago, it fueled uh, people like uh, uh, the, the, uh, the friendly societies, uh, who, people like Thomas Muir, who were working for popular democracy and universal franchise. A hundred years ago, it motivated the Red Clydesiders and people like John McLean. The idea of Scottish popular sovereignty has always been consistent throughout the centuries, but never more so than the present day, and never more so than 20 years ago when the 1998 Scotland Act, for the first time in all of those centuries, actually asked the people what form of government they would like. And they said, by a massive majority, three quarters of them, voted to establish the Scottish Parliament. So after Marlene's sterling work in researching the claim of right, we felt we were slightly better informed, but we still had questions. So we invited Jenny Eels from Random Scottish History to come and help. Welcome to the Indie Jigsaw Show, Jenny, and, and thanks so much for coming to talk to us. No, you're very welcome. It's nice to be here. So we've been doing these programmes about the Constitution, and um, Fiona and I have been out and about we're just talking to people and, you know, asking, you know, have they thought, what do they think? Should Scotland have a, have its, have a written constitution? Or for that matter, should the UK have a written constitution? And one of the things that came out of, of talking to people was, was uh, folk would refer to the claim of rights. People would refer to it, um, but they wouldn't necessarily seem to know a great deal about it. Could you maybe just give us a bit of a potted history about what the claim of right is? Sure. Um... The, the claim of right was really Scots asserting their right to question authority, really. Uh, they, Scots have been very fond of self-determination since yeah. time immemorial. You know, they, they always elected their own chiefs. It was always a fairly democratic situation mm-hmm. that, that we lived in. 
Uh, and that, that really didn't end until after Culloden, and it was the after effects of Culloden that, that gave the chiefs and lairds more power than they'd ever had before. They no longer had to answer to their people. But the claim of right obviously came before that. That, that was uh, 1689 uh, that the claim of right came in. Patrick Fraser actually says in the Scotsman of March 8, 1875, it was an article that we included in our Treaty of Union articles. Uh, he, he says, and I'll just read because he, he just said it very well, uh, laid it out. He said, the right of appeal to Parliament from the judgments of the Court of Session was asserted by the Scottish Bar in the, the year 1674. And for so doing, the whole members of the Faculty of Advocates were banished from Edinburgh by the authority of the Crown, Charles II being then king. The people of Scotland would not submit to this. And accordingly, in the claim of right presented to King William and Queen Mary in 1689, this constituted one of the articles, that it is the right and privilege of the subjects to protest for remed of law to the King and Parliament against sentences pronounced by the Lords of Session. That claim of right was accepted as a condition upon which these sovereigns were to be recognised as King and Queen of Scotland. So that lends itself to the idea that the Scots are sovereign. We, we don't answer to a monarchy, the monarchy answers to us. Authority answers to the people. Um, and it was always with a view to being beneficial to the population of Scotland and the way of life of Scots. And as we see from Culloden in 1745, that really decimated a lot of the ground that was laid by the claim of right, um, because the claim of right was accepted as legislation. It was accepted by the monarchy. It was accepted by the Parliament of Scotland at the time. It, it was law, you know, but after the union... And after, I mean, Culloden itself and the 15 Rebellion were civil wars that came as a protest to the Union. Scots didn't just want to put their own guy in the throne. That, that wasn't the sole purpose of that. It wasn't just to sit James on the throne or Charles on the throne. They felt that by putting these people on the throne, these people would then end the Union with England and make Scotland its own country again. Oh. That's why Scots were willing to overlook all of the issues with those sovereigns, because those were sovereigns that didn't fully believe in the claim of right. These were sovereigns that felt that they were there by right of God, not by the people of Scotland, and not by consent. But the people of Scotland saw these people as a means to an end, you know. So in that way, the, the Union ha had a a result and an effect and, and gave us two civil wars that, that ended up with the act of prescription and uh, a huge change in the lifestyles uh, of the people of Scotland and obviously led to the clearances and we could yeah. go and tell something yeah. about that, you know. Yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, that, that's a 1689 document. Primarily, it was to clear the path for William and Mary being appointed as joint monarchs, wasn't it? I've I've read it through. It's quite it's it's fascinating. I mean, it's of its time. We're having no papists here. That's a big part of it. Um, and and then the other part of it, as you say, is that the king is subject to the laws and the laws of the laws of the country. And I I was yeah. quite taken with. It. There's a bit that says, um, 
must have been James, had said that um, husbands were liable to be fined if their wives absented themselves from the church. So, and, and the claim yeah. writer says, that's nonsense. That, we're not having that any longer. So I, I was telling my husband, he said, oh, that's good, because um, he says, you absented yourself from the church a long time ago. And, you know, <laughs> it was a bit of a turning point, wasn't it? Something needed to shift in Scotland to get us away from the pickle that we were in and into a new, a, a new monarch. And, I, mean, I mean, hopefully it would have been well, a better one. Yeah, I, I don't feel like they felt like they had an option. Um, I mean, they'd restricted themselves with that whole nay papist thing. Uh, so really the first connection with the Stuarts uh, was Mary because she was the, the first and next Protestant heir. Yeah. So it wasn't, they didn't pick her because she deserved the position in any way. She was really just their only option at the time. And I don't know that Scots were entirely into that. And I think they needed to lay down the law with them before they even came into power and yeah. just make them realise what it was that they were going to be taking on yeah. by becoming monarchs of Scotland. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, Scots have never been people to hold back, you know, like we like to just say it as it is and go, listen, you need to understand, right? And yeah. that's basically what the yeah, right exactly. is. You know? It's, it's almost an ultimatum to the, the authorities you know, yeah. from the people. There have been various um, other occasions when the claim of right has been, um, you know, quoted and used as an argument. Um, so, uh, I mean, there was, there was certainly one in 19, I think it was 1989, that was all to do with moving towards setting up the Scottish Parliament again. And, and then the, and the claim of right, or there was a form of words came out of that. And then... 2012, 2000, there have been various debates, one in Holyrood, 2012, a couple in, down in Westminster. And I, I was listening to one that happened in 2016. So that was just post-Brexit. SNP called this debate and uh, Patrick Grady led off. He started off by saying that the claim of right, no longer just a historic document, it's a concept and a principle which now underpins the democracy and constitutional framework of Scotland. So would, would you agree with that? I would agree with that in as much the Declaration of Growth is. These are historical documents that, like you say, they're of their time. These are things that can be used as a basis, as a springboard to yeah. something contemporary. I, I love my historical documents like that. I mean, I'm a collector of contemporary source material, but I don't feel like you can then just go, oh, well, see this act from this bill of 300 years ago. Look, this is how it should be because no, you you have a chance here to, to make something new, something contemporary and something that is fit for purpose for the population as it is now. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I don't feel I, I don't feel like it has very much relevancy beyond that. Uh, yeah. You can quote these things as to give an idea of how the Scots of the past viewed a thing. And you can draw correlations and you can make comparisons with how it is now but you you can't use it 
as your argument for a thing because, I mean, it's like using the Treaty of Union as a thing. It's been subverted so often. There's been so many changes that it's no longer really applicable mm. in any real sense to, to how it is now, you know. Um, I mean, again, that's a whole other thing where they were able to make changes if it was for the benefit of Scotland. But then who was deciding what was of benefit to Scotland? The English, mainly. Yeah. Parliament was deciding what was the benefit of Scotland. So, um, I, yeah, there, these, these things are fantastic to use as a basis. But what we do need is people to create something new. And, I mean, the Americans use the Declaration of Our Growth for their own Declaration of Independence. So it's not as if we're beyond being able to do that for ourselves and coming up with something more contemporary and yeah, more useful. Yeah. I really like that phrase you just used, that you know, those documents, those historical documents, can be a springboard yeah. enable us to you know to move into something yeah. that um, it, it needs to be up Absolutely. to date you know it, it needs to be we're going to be a you know a new nation or at least a nation reasserting its independence yeah. and 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 we need something that meets the times that we're in isn't it so i think that springboard um uh, image is really 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 good really good one yeah we can't constantly be harking back to the past you know uh, when what we're wanting to do mainly is create a positive future for ourselves. We can learn lessons from what's come before, but not really more than that, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. We're trying to build something from the ground up. What we're looking to do is draw a line under the whole thing and, and start anew and, and create something for ourselves um, that's far more democratic, I guess than a situation that we're in just now. Um, we've Scots being so underrepresented for the last 300 odd years at Westminster, we've not really had a say over our own affairs. And it's about time that we got some self-determination back because it's just knocked the confidence out of Scots mm. for a second now and mm -hmm. we need to get that confidence back we need to believe in ourselves we've done these great things in the past we've come up with these great um, pieces of legislation in the past scottish laws were always held higher than english we we have it within us to create something brand new and brilliant and properly modern and actually lead other countries on the world stage towards something that's more progressive inclusive that's just a, a really great way of putting it and maybe maybe the fact that that's happened you know over the centuries is is connected with what you said at the beginning that there's something about how we've we've uh, formed our society over all those centuries where that had a bit of at least a kernel of what these days we'd call something that's a bit more democratic uh, so so that's the people jointly coming to a decision about what's best suited to themselves. I mean, maybe because that's a bit, you know, uh, yeah, inbuilt in us that, um, that, that, that have, you know, it has enabled us to do, to do all those, those sort of things yeah, since. I think, I think despite the lack of confidence that centralisation has led to, um, part of that is what we know as the Scottish cringe. Yeah. Um, I, I think despite that knock to, to our nation's self-confidence, I, I think there was just that 
inherent strong desire in us um, to to do things our own way. We ended up with more death penalties after the union inherited from England. We ended up with traitor laws inherited from England. But we've managed to to get beyond that to the point where we're able to distinguish ourselves from England despite the union. We're able to have more rights for our people in the form of free healthcare and free education are two of the really main rights that Scots have. Even as hampered as we are, you know, that that strength is still within us, you know. And I think that's what history is good to show is the fact that Scots have never stopped fighting for what they believed in. Scots have never stopped fighting for the rights of the people yeah. and against the encroachments that kept coming from Westminster continuously. Yeah. And yeah. centralising was a big deal. Centralisation was a huge deal and it has so much to answer for because it's led to our histories being muddled and this whole England and English instead of Britain, British, that's still so inherent and you still hear it all over the place. And even in Scottish historical textbooks by Scottish publishers for Scottish schools, you were getting um, like James the first being talked about when it was James the sixth they actually meant. Yeah. And it, it's this kind of it's the little insidious things yeah. that have made it into our culture. Just speaking our own language, the Scots. Uh, I mean, my own my own mum would have me repeat a thing until I said it correctly. And that's what the Scottish cringe is kind of born from. It's the idea that you weren't good enough as a person. You you weren't deserving of the better things in life if you didn't speak a certain way and hold yourself a certain way. I mean, I must say, I think that um, across England, there's an equivalent of that that's class-based. Um, here it's kind of, well, if you're Scottish, you know, yeah, it's maybe if you're Scottish, that's enough to feel a bit cringy. In, in, in England, it's maybe more class-based. But we can't, we can't go forgetting what's come before and the people that have striven for Scots to retain their sense of self um, before. And there have been attempts. I mean, the act of prescription after 1745, that was supposed to last in their mind a generation. It ended in 1782. And that was an attempt to anglicise Scots, to deny them their culture and their way of life. What worked even better than that was the First and Second World War propagandas of we are one people, we are one nation, yeah. we are in this together. Yeah. People forgot all the previous contentions. They forgot everything that they'd yeah. been striving for previously. Yeah. They forgot the people, that the patriots that had been out for them, the William Burnses and the the David McCrae's and the Charles Waddies and they, they forgot these people and they forgot what they'd been attempting to get and there was this period of nothing, of Britishness until people started going, oh, hang on a minute, nothing's changed, we're still in this crappy position, we still yeah, need to yeah. be able to fix this somehow and then you had the rise of the SNP and you had yeah. uh, this drive self-determination yeah. again but it was no longer home rule that they were wanting yeah. because that had failed we'd had hundreds of years of failing I guess Westminster purely because of the lack of representation 
I mean, these days we call it a democratic deficit, isn't it? And um, maybe that's just another kind of description for, for what's been going on for the, yeah, the 300 years. 1689 got together and, 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 and created this claim of right uh, document. And actually, it's just been really fascinating having a chat to you. We could go on for a long time, I reckon, but maybe we'd better kind of stop there. Thanks so much for, um, for coming and uh, having this conversation. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And before we move on to look at constitutions of the future, here's a little clip of Ian Blackford at Westminster quoting the claim of right and quite an interesting judgment as well that was made in the courts. So we're not seeking the Prime Minister's permission. The only permission we need, the only permission we will ever need is the democratic permission of the Scottish people. But it's the people of Scotland who hold sovereignty. And you might want to listen to this. Because let's not forget the legal opinion in the case of McCormick versus the Crown at the Court of Session in 1953, when Lord Cooper stated that the principle of the unlimited sovereignty of Parliament is a distinctly English principle that has no counterpart in Scottish constitution. It is, Mr Speaker, unquestionably the right of those in Scotland to determine their own future. Those rights were enshrined in the claim of right that was so instrumental in delivering our devolved parliament and is the case today as we seek to exercise our rights in an independence referendum. Jenny's conclusion was much the same as last month's conclusion that Mike Russell outlined for us, that although these things are, are fascinating and relevant to our history, they're not in themselves what we need to become a modern country with its own constitution. I think that's where I'm left. Uh, yeah, there are these historic documents, I mean, centuries and centuries old, and, and they do have relevance. They're a sort of starting off block, you know, for how Scotland thinks about itself. But, um, but they're not in themselves a- anything like near enough to be able to be a, you know, a, any form of constitution for a modern nation. I mean, I'm sure the people who, who rate them um, know that perfectly fine. So in, in, in my mind, I would think, you know, if you're writing a constitution, you might refer to those documents in a sort of preamble. Yeah. So, so or another way of putting it is that I can get a sense that there's an evolution of ideas and thinking and, um, and, and a whole emotional connection with, you know, with the country and the nation. But it's an evolution and we, we need to move into the next stage of that evolution and it can draw on what's there in, in um, well, way back to the Declaration of Our Broth and it can draw from the claim of right. The claim of right is, a, is, proof, is proof that it works and it was used. Um, but we need to evolve on from that. So let's introduce our second guest on the show. This is Dr. Elliot Bulmer, who's a constitutional expert and lawyer. He's worked on the constitution building in Scotland. He was the research director of the Constitutional Commission up to 2013. He's taught you know, comparative politics and history of political thought at uh, universities in Scotland. Author of several books. There's one that's called A Model Constitution for Scotland, but then there's also one called A Constitution for the Common Good. And that title really kind of sparked Mm. me. Just as, you know, talking to Jenny when she said these old historical documents can be a springboard for what we want. So thank you very much for joining us. I just imagined you with a new client and a blank sheet of paper. And my first question is just, where do you start? As we live our lives, we're all members 
to some extent or other of organizations, associations, and they have rules. They have rules that, de that, that determine what their principles are, how they're governed, what standards are expected of, of their members, the, the, the promises and covenants that we make with one another that underpin our mutual obligation. And um, most countries, most democratic countries have that. They have a, a law that is above other laws, that's harder to change than other laws, which pins down the fundamentals. What is it that in spite of our political differences and the different parties and priorities that we have, that we all agree as democratic citizens of, of this country are foundational. And that may be in terms of our structures of government. How often do we have elections? What electoral system do we use? What powers do people like the prime minister have? How are they accountable? It could be issues to do with rights and it can also be issues to do with identity, right? So people put things like, um, languages into a constitution. The, the Canadian constitution very famously, for example, establishes kind of federal bilingualism and protects language rights and those kinds of things that are integral to identity. So I, I want to demystify constitutions mm -hmm. and just explain them that, you know, constitutions are about as interesting as the plumbing in your house. <laughs> right? You want it to be there, you want it to work, you probably don't want to have to take too much of an interest in it until it starts to stink and when and when there's a when there's a problem when when constitutions are broken when they don't work when they don't provide uh, a sound agreed basis for mutual cooperation and for holding governments to account and for including people in the political discussion that's when people start to notice them right so in a british context we ha we're having a lot of conversation now about the uh, inadequacy of Britain's very unique kind of unwritten constitution, I might even call it a sort of non-existent constitution, because it doesn't, it doesn't perform some of the key functions that a constitution normally performs. So most countries have a thing called a constitution. They're not telephone books, they're, they're thin little things that you can put in your pocket normally, um, and they set out the ground rules of the state, and most countries have them. I think we tend to think, when we think of constitutions, people think about America, hear about the American Constitution on TV, but America is actually an outlier, right? America has a very odd constitution, a very old constitution. If you're looking at a constitution today, you wouldn't look at America as your example. You'd look at perhaps other Commonwealth countries, uh, Australia, Jamaica, Barbados, etc., that have had a, a similar parliamentary system of government, but have written it down in, in ways that clarify it and, and protect it. Um, You'd look at other European countries. So you'd look at places like Sweden, Norway, Ireland. This comes back to your first question. When you start with a blank piece of paper, what do you do? Well, you almost never start with a blank piece of paper because although the constitution is a piece of paper, what you're really doing is laying, you're putting into legal terms, political agreements. And those political agreements are historically embedded, right? So. You can, you can look around the world, if you're familiar with these constitutions, you can understand something of the history and the trajectory of a country from its constitution. You look at French-speaking countries in Africa, countries like Tunisia, its constitution looks very French, in the same way as the constitution of Jamaica looks very British, or the constitution of India kind of looks very British. Now, there's good historical reasons for that. And generally, the the fruit doesn't fall too far from the tree. Political elites are enculturated into a system, voters understand a system, 
Which is not to say that you can't make important changes. And let's face it, there are important changes in the British system that need to be made. Um, but it does mean that those kind of changes would, would tend to go within a family of similar constitutions, right? So when you're looking in a Scottish constitutional context, you very kindly mentioned my 2015 book, A Constitution for the Common Good. But I developed this also in my 2016 book, um, uh, Constituting Scotland, uh, in which I, I talk a little bit about what is the vi what are the parameters of a viable and acceptable constitution in Scotland? Nobody wants a constitution for Scotland that looks like the American constitution, right? Or that looks like the Saudi Arabian constitution, which is important, right? Because it's a question of what kind of state are we? They're looking at a constitution which is broadly in line with other Commonwealth constitutions and other kind of Northwestern European constitutions. So we're probably looking at a parliamentary system as opposed to a presidential system, a system in which there's a first minister or prime minister and cabinet that is responsible to parliament. We're probably looking at a, a unitary state, right? There's a lot of scope for decentralization within Scotland. But I don't think there's any desire for Scotland itself to be federalized. So we have some of those parameters. We're looking at a liberal democratic system. You know, there's no desire, mainstream desire within Scotland for a Scottish state to be, you know, a socialist people's republic or mm -hmm. an Islamic caliphate or a feudal monarchy. You know, we're looking, so we've got parameters there of what might this constitution look like? And I would suggest, you know, in, in very broad terms, draw a line on a map between Ireland and Norway, and Scotland is roughly in the middle of it. And I would say the same is roughly true of the constitution. That's very interesting, because one of the ones that we've been um, talking about recently is the Icelandic example. Um, when they first became independent, they essentially were using the Danish constitution and cross the Danish out and put Iceland on it. Yeah. Um, and then were a, a fascinating example of grassroots people getting together to come up with something which caught everybody's imagination, I think, but it doesn't seem to have resulted in an actual new constitution for them. So are there pitfalls along the way that, that we need to avoid? Oh, very much so, yeah. Um, Iceland is a really good example because you're right. They did two things. One is they crossed out Denmark and put in Iceland. The other thing is they they crossed out the king and put in the president, right? So, mm -hmm. they, so they established this sort of Icelandic presidency. The crowdsourced constitution of 2011 did generate a lot of interest, but it's, the, the crucial part of it is that it failed. Why did it fail? Well, because elites were kept out of the bargain. And one of the things that we see, once people understand what a constitution is and why it matters and why this is absolutely essential to the building of a viable, acceptable, stable Scottish state, they then say, but we can't have the politicians involved. And I understand that because it's got to come in a sense from the people. It's got to have popular legitimacy. But if you cut the politicians out, what will they do? They'll kill it. Every good constitution, every workable constitution is a compromise. And, and the best example of this I always give is Spain. So in, in the 1930s, Spain becomes a republic. They adopt this very progressive sort of left-wing constitution that meets all of the demands for a kind of um, secular republic that's going to, to transform Spanish society. What do you get? You get a nationalist uprising, uh, a civil war, and a 40-year dictatorship. Why? Because there was no compromise.
a constitution cannot be a partisan document. It has to be the common ground. And that's and that comes to say, but that's where, if you go back to the Spanish example, in the 1970s, they learned that lesson. So in the 1970s, and it's given Spain the best democratic constitution, best period of democratic stability it's had, notwithstanding concerns about the Catalan issue. Um, but they did it through compromise. And I think that's really important in a Scottish context because an independent Scotland will not be a, a Scotland for Scottish nationalists. It won't be a Scotland only for those who voted for it. Everybody who finds themselves a citizen of Scotland, even people with an accent like mine, will have to feel that they have a sense of belonging and identity and inclusion in that state and can live with it. We've got this great example of that not working in terms of Brexit, haven't we? How you lost, suck it up. You know, that is yeah. not a way that's ever going to bring parties together. And I'm just interested in um, the process by which our work on a Scottish constitution is going to be able to re-engage people from the no side. Yeah. Um, and how we do that, because anything that we're doing just now um, particularly even the work the work that, that Mike Russell's doing, is by its nature more interesting right now to the people who want to vote yes. So how we actually get the no's involved, how, how do we do that? You're right, you've got to get this, what's called loser's consent, right? They've, mm. got to, they've got to say, well, okay, it's not what I wanted, but I can live with it. I think there's a number of things there. One is to understand that none of this is about winning a referendum. Winning a referendum, as Brexit showed us, is in some ways the easiest part of this. The challenge is to build a state. Building a state means building the institutions of that state. Now, Scotland is fortunate in that we already have many of those institutions. We have a parliament, we have a government, we have a judiciary, we have 90% of a civil service. Um, but there's some things that we don't have, right? So we don't have armed forces. We don't have a diplomatic service. Um, but those key institutions have to transfer their loyalty from a British state to a Scottish state. And there are key elites in, in, in those institutions, right? And again, this is a lesson from history. Look at the Weimar Republic after the First World War in Germany. Again, an attempt to be this sort of quite progressive state but it, it ignored those key elites. It ignored the military. It ignored the sort of established power brokers in the land. And what did they do? They turned against it and they, they put their loss in with somebody who ultimately caused you know, mass destruction. So building that loser's consent at the, at the voting level is critical. Reassuring, and, and this is so painful to say, because I'm always saying it to people who spent their life fighting against those key elites, right? But the judges who sit in their club in Edinburgh and the people who have run Scotland quietly behind the scenes for the last 300 years are not going away. We need to find ways in which they can say, that's not what I wanted but I can live with it. And you know what? I'm gonna go and be the Scottish ambassador to the United Nations. 
And I'm going to go and be, I'm going to go and represent my ancient Scottish regiment in NATO or whatever it might be, and that they can transfer that loyalty. This is where the crown, I think, becomes a very important symbolic, symbolic marker and, and why I think the, the SNP policy of keeping the monarchy, at least initially, at least during that sort of transitional generation, is, is quite important. It's probably less important now than it was when they came up with that policy in the 1970s. So the big debate as to whether the SNP was going to be a Republican party or not took place around the time of the, the, the Silver Jubilee in the 1970s, right? Mm -hmm. And the popular perception of the monarchy has, I think, changed quite a bit since then. So it's maybe not quite as critical as it was, but I think for the key elites, the, the, the army officers, right, have to be able to feel that they can transfer their loyalty. So that's on the one side, that's the institutional side. Then you've got the political side. Devolution was very good in this regard. Um, you know, the Tories fought it tooth and nail. Once it happened, you know, they went with it. And you could argue that that's rolling back now. But I think that once independence happens, there's a, there's a real gap in the market for a, sens a sensible, moderate, pragmatic centre-right party in Scotland. You know, there are, there are business interests, there are agricultural and rural interests, there are socially conservative religious voters. There's a coalition there that, that supports a centre-right party that is detoxified from its unionism or, that tra or provides a vehicle for those people to, to find a role and a voice and an identity for themselves within a Scottish state. And so I think that the constitution is vital in setting a framework within which people can do that. Because what the constitution does is it says, this state belongs to all of us. It says nothing fundamental, if you have a sort of constitutional amendment rule that requires a referendum or whatever, it says nothing fundamental can be changed without the consent of the community of the realm. That sort of old declaration of our growth principle, which was the foundation of particularist claims to Scottish nationalism, becomes a universal claim to Scottish nationhood, unites people who maybe want even to keep a British identity, but within a Scottish state. Let's yeah. face it. Many Scots have kept a Scottish identity within a British state for 300 years. There's no reason why people can't still feel a British identity within a Scottish state if it's a Scottish state in which they feel they have a voice, they have rights, they're not excluded, that power is public and not privatised into a particular party or particular section. So I think I'm talking at quite an abstract level here, right? And, and um, But I, I think the way I would look at it is the constitution is the document that says we the people collectively are the landlord of the state. The government of the day is the tenant. That's a really interesting way of thinking about it actually. One, one of the um... You mentioned the, the current shenanigans going on in Westminster in particular. I've been thinking of a constitution as a sort of a set of rules, but really it, it's a set of protections almost, isn't it, from a rogue government 
Um, and the idea that your constitution sits above that and it in some ways puts checks on a government that we clearly don't have on the Westminster one where they can break any rule they like with seeming impunity just because they have a, a majority um, and that's the only way it's it's measured by. So you can kind of see why people who want the Westminster situation to continue would be very much against the idea of a, a Scottish constitution. But I think to, to present it maybe as, as something that's there to protect us I think that's perhaps a more positive way of looking at it. Yeah, I think all these understandings go together, right? So it's a rule book, it's it's a protection, it's a it's a set of mutual promises, it's a it's a declaration of principles, it's a statement of ethics. All of those things are kind of um, embedded in the constitution in a different in different ways, um, mm -hmm. and I and I think once you actually look at a constitution and see what's in a constitution. I, I would invite people to go online and look up something like, start with maybe one of the Commonwealth Constitution, look up the Constitution of Barbados or something. All right. Mm -hmm. um, you know, just look at it and have a read of it or pick somewhere random like the Solomon Islands. Have a look at chapter eight of the Constitution of the Solomon Islands and you'll see <laughs> about principles in public life. Now, does that mean that the Solomon Islands has no shenanigans? No, of course not. Because you know, mere words on the page can't save you. I mean, you have to have the, the spirit as well as the letter, right? But what you're doing is you're signaling authoritatively certain principles, values, foundations that then shape the conversation. And then what they do is they provide the key to legitimacy. Because once you go beyond that, you, you, lose your, you lose your sort of claim to legitimacy. So at the mm. moment, when there are no no real rules, right? No real rules that are binding on the government that the government can't ultimately change. It becomes about self-regulation. Whereas when you have those rules and they're stated, then it's about collective regulation. And that protects all of us. It protects the state, which is everybody, from the government of the day or from the ruling party manipulating the rules to suit their own advantage. And that could be at a really basic level. Like at the moment, there's nothing to prevent a government with its, with its ordinary legislative majority changing constituency boundaries or rejigging mm -hmm. the electoral commission or introducing restrictions on the right to vote, all of which are done or being done in ways that make it easier for them to win. So they can manipulate the rules. You know, and are doing, are doing in some of those examples. Exactly, exactly. So uh, if I may switch now to a sort of sporting analogy, you give the team in possession of the ball the right to rewrite the rules of the game as they go along. Yeah. Uh, it's just fundamentally unfair, right? Something unjust about that, which I think should speak to us not just on a practical, pragmatic level, but also on a moral level, that we mm. don't want to live in a society where those in charge make up the rules as they go along. Yeah. And even when you think about the, from the, the perspective of the independence of Scotland, if England is happy with their current values and rules and the way they're working, that's fine. But if we're not, and we can't get a change made because there's no constitution and we don't have a majority in there, it kind of strengthens the, the position that our, our only hope of creating our own country with our own values is as a, an independent state. I, I, I would agree with that. Again, I, I look at countries like, like Canada, right? 
if, if the UK had something like the Canadian Constitution and had had that since 100 years ago when these things were first discussed, maybe there wouldn't be a, a move for Scottish independence now. Yeah. I mean, there might, but it, I, I imagine it would be a very different thing. It's the inability of the British state to reconstitute itself and to put its own house in order when it is so desperately needed that makes me think that Scotland needs to sort of go ahead, get to grips with this. It's beneficial in itself to have a well-constituted state that is institutionally bound to serve the public interest. Because the key question here is, will a Scottish state serve the public interest of Scotland better than the British state has done? Yeah. And the answer to that depends on what form that Scottish state takes. Because if an independent Scotland becomes a failed state, if it becomes a sort of corrupt country run by oil oligarchs, then it probably won't. What, what, what do you want to protect? You want to stop the government manipulating the law. So you need to make sure you have judicial independence. So things like a judicial appointments commission, you might want to put that on a, on a constitutional basis rather than a merely statutory basis. Things like an electoral commission. You don't want the government of the day being able to appoint all the members of an electoral commission to change its, its rules. You want that to be protected. And so you put that into a constitution, not to make sure that you are going to have free and fair elections every four or five years, um, that there's mechanisms of accountability of the prime minister to parliament, that the role of opposition is recognized, that the civil service, the independence and neutrality of the civil service is protected, that the military is properly subordinated to the elected government but that it can't be used for sort of partisan purposes. And those are the kinds of things that a constitution can help to do. And all, all very reassuring things, just as you're listing them there. I'm trying to put myself in the position of somebody who perhaps would vote no and would feel very British, but lives in Scotland. And actually, there's nothing there that you've said that I think they would be going, oh, no, we're not having that. You know, it just makes good common sense. Absolutely. And I think that there's a lot of people out there who are, by nature, perhaps small c conservative, who are utterly appalled by the way the Conservative Party has moved in the last five years or so, um, and who don't necessarily support Brexit, and they're a bit politically homeless. And I think the Constitution is a way of reaching out to them as well and saying, look, you know, you're, even if you're going to be in a minority in an independent, this is a crucial thing, right? Is that the parties that necessarily don't expect to be immediately in power have, have the greatest interest in some ways in protecting these fundamentals in a constitution. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that we have to make every compromise to keep the politically homeless Tories happy. I'm not saying that at all. Um, I'm also not saying that a constitution should itself be conservative. I think there's a lot of things which, which need improvement and, and particularly in terms of, um, you know, protecting against abuses of, of power, protecting against conflicts of interest, those kinds of things, which we can and should put into a constitution. What I'm saying is that the constitution is as much about reassurance as it is about transformation. That reassurance is not just to domestic audiences, it's also internationally. So an independent Scotland has to convince the rest of the world that this is a partner that is trusted, you can do deals with, that is not going to be perfidious in its relationship with you know, key allies, the European Union, et cetera. So 
things in the constitution about how we conduct our international affairs, how we approve treaties. Mm. Those kind of things could be crucial in building international credibility, credibility in the in the currency markets. I mean, people don't like to have to admit it, but ultimately these things matter when when we're trying to build a state that will work. There's a lot of deep problems in Scotland. You know, the, the poverty and the state of the infrastructure are appalling. But we've got a lot of raising of expectations to do and a lot of raising of delivery to do. And But to do that, we have to be institutionally stable and internationally and financially credible. But then what is the point of independence if not to do things differently and exactly. better? There needs to be some genuine public participation in that process. But at the moment, half the population don't want to engage in that. And if we allowed only the other half to, to engage in it, we would come up with something that's too radical to be acceptable to everyone. So what we need to do, I think, at this stage is to really try and a solution that builds on international good practice, that builds on the existing institutions and looks at what's been in the Scotland Act um, and other relevant legislation and kind of constitution, puts a constitutional wrapper around that. And so come up with a draft that does that. So that on day one of independence, there is something which is at least is broadly agreed by those who are saying, look, we want independence. This is our prospectus. This is what we're going to guarantee on day one. But part of that is then a constitutional review and revision mechanism that provides, once the dust has settled, because there's a lot to do in the first years of independence. Mm currency, embassies, warships, printing passports, what you name it, that, that, that it all needs to be done. And we probably don't want to be doing the constitution in the midst of all of those other state building things. We probably want something that works, that is robust, that is, that is coherent, that is, that is relatively watertight, but it's interim, right? It, it doesn't say this is how it's going to be forever. Mm -hmm. Down the line, we may want to reopen things like the monarchy or the geographical dispersal of power within Scotland. Mm -hmm. And I think there should be a mechanism for that built in. And there's no great mystery to this, right? I mean, this is the, this is the great thing is that the British state in its transformation from empire state to post-imperial state has massive experience of countries transitioning to independence. And in almost all cases, they adopted a written constitution at that moment of independence. And those that have kept that have been, generally kept their democracies, right? Those who threw it away often went through periods of, of authoritarian rule before they were then able to rebuild. There is good precedent. There's nothing against either the Scottish tradition or frankly, even the British tradition in mm -hmm. writing down the essentials. It wasn't done at Westminster for the UK, but it was done by British civil servants steeped in that parliamentary tradition for places all around the world. You need to know what you're doing, but there's nothing technically difficult about this stuff. It's all been done before. I think we forget that, don't we? Just how many countries have left yeah. <laughs> for the empire. Then there is also legislation as to how it happens. So, Absolutely. Yeah. And, and yeah. you know, that's something that, again, I've written about at, at, at some length. This is, you know, what is what is the actual mechanism for doing that? A good example of a country that's both European and Commonwealth would be, would be both Ireland. Well, Ireland's not in the Commonwealth, but it has a, an interesting history of having been part of the UK. Um, mm. The other one is Malta. And these, these are countries where I think you can start to see 
the basic outlines of a constitution. You don't, don't cut and paste, you don't just copy blindly. But if you wanted to see what might a constitution look like, well, that would give you an indication of the kinds of things that, for example, would be in there. I think that, that description that you gave of the, the line between was Ireland and Norway, I, yes. I would be happy anywhere on that line. I think it, it sounds about right. It does. And actually, that's an, an interesting point that applies not just to, to the Constitution, but across a whole range of other areas of public policy, actually. Thanks for listening to Scottish Independence Podcasts. Please subscribe to our channel and also please share this with anybody you think would be interested. Bye for now.